Today we are in Galatians chapter 2. We're just doing a very small passage, 11 through 14. Um, I'm going to read that passage to you. In honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read it? But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? Amen. This is God's word. He can be seated. So we've been diving into this letter um, from the Apostle Paul to the churches of Galatia. And he was shocked not long after he had returned to Antioch, he was shocked to hear that there were false teachers that had come into those congregations and that uh, who had told them that they had to keep the laws of Moses to be saved, and they had believed it. So Paul was having a hard time understanding how in the world could they have so easily switched from, from the gospel of grace to this gospel of works. So he responded by sharing the amazing story of his conversion, which was totally by grace. I mean, here's a man who's hunting down Christians and putting them in prison and killing them, and God reaches out and saves him as he sees the, the, the glorified Christ. Now, he had done absolutely everything not to deserve it, and yet God took hold of him and made him his own. And then he shared how the gospel of grace was revealed to him. Uh, he told how the leaders of the church in Jerusalem confirmed the, his understanding that grace alone was required for salvation. And in our passage today, he gives an a, account of this confrontation that he had between two ideas that were prevalent in the church at the time. One was that, yeah, Jesus is the Messiah, but we still need to keep the laws of Moses. And the other is that, no, it is grace alone that saves us. Grace and only grace. The grace in, exhibited in what Christ did for us on the cross, and that is all. Um, so the issue still comes up in the church today in different ways, in different forms. It, it's really prevalent in Messianic congregations. I, I visited some Messianic congregations in California where where they were struggling with, do we have to be kosher or not? Part of the church, part of the church says, absolutely, we need to follow the rabbinical teachings too, and and so forth. And part of the church said, no, it's all by grace. We need to understand the letters of Paul. So they're still struggling today with this issue. Verse eleven again. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Cephas, is, of course, is the apostle Peter apostles arguing with each other in conflict with each other i thought they were all perfect didn't you <laughs> there is none perfect no 
not one. <laughs> well, there is one. The psalmist wrote that before the incarnation. Yes, even apostles had to keep one another accountable. And if apostles have to keep one another accountable, how much more elders in the local church and those who are members of a church helping one another to stay on track and stay true to the gospel of Christ. You know, this, uh, the scripture says that um, if we see a brother wander from the truth and someone brings him back, we've saved their soul from death and of, from a multitude of sins. That's James 5, 19 and 20. So public opposition should always be face-to-face, -face, not behind someone's back. It should never be about personalities, but only regarding the vital issues of faith. It should be done with gentleness and meekness, but also with a firm, unwavering conviction of truth, not to shame the person, but to help all see the truth for their good and the good of all who are involved. Paul was certainly bold to rebuke the apostle that Jesus himself appointed to be head of the church. It was the right thing to do, though. The issue here was if salvation is by grace alone or are works necessary to be saved. And timidity in these essential matters of the faith usually comes from the fear of men. The Proverbs warn us, the fear of man lays a snare. That's Proverbs 29, 25. When we fear man more than God, we're idolizing the opinions of men. To not speak out means we're in bondage to the same thing that caused Peter to stumble in this case and act hypocritically. In this situation, Paul feared God. God and Peter feared man. Why do we need help from one another to bring correction? Well, when we initially come to faith, we often come with our old habits and our old opinions. And so we have those tendencies in us. We've, we've lived in those patterns for so long. Now we have the power, though, to refuse sin but we have to train ourselves by replacing our old habits with new habits. 1 Timothy 4, 7, and 8 says, Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Instead of reacting instinctively like we used to do, you know, sometimes somebody will say something and you've got to come back, right? Just rolls out. Instead of doing that, we train ourselves to look to the Lord for his leading. We ask the Holy Spirit for the correct response. We ask ourselves how Christ might be expressed in this situation. Our old patterns are our weaknesses that we have to vigilantly guard against. And we can do that by memorizing scripture that addresses those weaknesses. Um, man, one of our, our favorite verses comes from Job. I've made a covenant with my eyes. Why should I look on a maid? 
right? When you're tempted in that way, boom, bring the verse out. That's the sword that Jesus himself used when he was tempted by Satan. He used the scriptures, and that's what we need to learn to do as well. And we do that by memorizing verses that address those weaknesses and determining by the help of the Spirit to see divine patterns begin to replace the old ones. Peter's weakness was fearing what others thought of him. And that issue of pleasing man we saw in the first chapter in verse 10. We can't be a servant of Christ and please men as well. Paul was helping Peter to live a new pattern by publicly addressing his weakness. Remember that Peter had seen that vision of the sheet that came down from heaven with all the unclean things and the Lord told him to kill and eat. And he says, no, Lord, I would never let anything unclean enter my mouth. Three times God did it until finally Peter was starting to get the point. The Gentiles knocked on the door. He goes to the Cornelius house. He starts sharing the word and the Holy Spirit comes down on all of them. And Peter goes, now I get it. Now I get it. God doesn't discriminate about people. He reaches out to everyone, everywhere, and draws them to himself. It's grace. It's just grace. The Gospel of Mark, most likely, most scholars believe, was, uh, is really Mark writing down what Peter shared with him, conveying the accounts of Jesus' life. In that gospel, Mark tells the story of Jesus explaining that it's not what we eat that defiles us, but rather what comes out from a person's heart that defiles us. He explains that it was things like lust, covetousness, deceit, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. It isn't the food we that eat that is then expelled. Mark commented that when Jesus said this, he declared all foods clean. Jesus was teaching that righteousness doesn't have anything to do with what you eat or don't eat. It, now, how could that be? When the Jewish law that Jesus was living under had all those rules about food, it's because Jesus was declaring the kingdom had come. Jesus is our new high priest. And when you have a new high priest, when you have a new priesthood, not in the order of Aaron, then you have the, everything that Aaron established and, and was about was the law. But a new priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, it's a whole new thing. It's a whole new covenant. And it doesn't have anything to do with what we eat. Peter heard Jesus say this, and he should have known even better than, Peter, than Paul that the kosher laws had ended with Jesus and that the kingdom had come. About abstaining from certain foods, Paul wrote, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's re received with thanksgiving for it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. Many Messianic Jews today eat kosher, citing a desire to be faithful to the commands given to Moses. And I suppose there's no harm in, in doing so as long as you don't think it's somehow adding to your righteousness or adding to what Jesus did for us. All who are in Christ need to realize they've entered a new covenant. 
And that covenant supersedes the old covenant. It was predicted in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33. Hebrews 12, 18 to 24 tells us we haven't come to Mount Sinai where the law was given with fear and trembling as the mountain shook and the voice of God was like a blast of a trumpet. We've come to Mount Zion, the heavenly city, the saints made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Amen. Verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. James was the first among equals in, in the church in Jerusalem. In other words, he was the lead elder. He did most of the, the speaking and, and made the consensus of the people. The church was almost all Jewish in Jerusalem at that point. And apparently they were still practicing the kosher laws. And while they decided not to ask Gentiles to keep the Jewish laws at that previous meeting that Paul had had with Peter, James, and John, they seemed to have still been observing them out of respect for their culture and the covenant Moses introduced. And those three leaders had apparently not discussed with the whole church what they'd agreed upon with Paul regarding the law not being part of the new covenant. Maybe they wanted to avoid conflict and thought it was unnecessary because all the believers there were Jewish. Peter recognized that even as a Jew, he wasn't bound by the law to eat kosher. And so when he went to Antioch, he ate with the Gentiles. Jesus fulfilled the law for us, and in him we have the freedom to walk in the Spirit of the law rather than the letter. Paul claims that when Peter was in Antioch, he was afraid of those Judaizers and what they would think. They are those who believe one must keep the law to be saved. Fearing that criticism, Peter drew back in, from eating with the Gentile believers and ate just with the Jewish believers. The appearance and the message it sent was that the laws of Moses should be observed. And this led to all the Jews at one table and Paul and the Gentiles at another table. To understand the significance, we, we should remember that table fellowship for the people there in that culture and at that time was a, was a sharing of life. It wasn't just eating a meal. It was sharing life together. Jews would never eat with Gentiles. That's why in in why an accusation against Jesus was that he ate with sinners. Remember the Pharisees said, they actually they came to the disciples and said, why does your master eat with sinners? Now that means uh, non-observant Jews. Okay, that's what they're referring to. Jews that don't try to live by the, by the laws, but they're Jewish. So imagine if they... If the Pharisees got upset with Jesus for eating Jews that didn't always eat kosher, what would it be like if he ate with a Gentile? That, for them, that's horrible. How can you even think about that? And so it's natural that these Pharisees came into, the, into faith still carrying that kind of, uh, of prejudice. So even eating with Jews who were non-kosher was looked down on. But by eating with sinners... Jesus was declaring the kingdom had come. A relationship with God was not about the Jewish laws, 
but about fellowship with Christ. The old covenant even pointed toward the new one. For Christians, eating together was that time of fellowship that usually included communion. A new covenant was being ushered in, one with a new high priest, Christ Jesus. And this new covenant wasn't based on obeying the rules, but upon what our glorious high priest has done for us. In Christ, we are one. There's no Jew or Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, male or female. There are only those who have the righteousness of God in Christ and those who have rejected his grace. Some groups think they are the only ones who have the correct doctrines, uh, a special corner on the truth, right? And when they get to heaven, they're going to be on the front row, right? The, the, <laughs> the bride of Christ is one. Last week we talked about those essential doctrines of the faith that make us one. And if we are in Christ, if we receive what he's done for us, how he died for us, if we've received that forgiveness and know that that's the only way, what he did for us, we are one with all our brothers and sisters, no matter what culture they come from or really from what time period they live in. We are one. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. Ephesians 4, 4 to 6. There are no partitions in heaven. You are part of a heavenly city or you aren't. And there are no special sections for Messianic Jews or Charismatics or Baptists or whatever your group is. You know, you've heard that joke that the, the couple gets to heaven and one guy's talking to the other guy and he says, what's that partition over there? And he says, oh, those are the Baptists. They think they're the only ones here. <laughs> I have nothing against Baptists. I love my Baptist brothers. We all think that our group is the best. Amen? That's why we're here, <laughs> right? Or we'd be at a different church. We forget that the group we are all in is the church of Jesus Christ and that all our sins have been forgiven and that none of us deserves it and none of us are perfected yet except our Armenian brothers that believed in entire sanctification. have to add that. <laughs> and I love them too. Verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, that is Peter, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Peter's bad example caused, caused Barnabas and all the other Jewish believers in Antioch to separate themselves as well. Our actions always influence others for better or worse. They communicate a message, and if the message is corrupt, and it, it has the potential to lead others astray, especially young believers in the faith. No one is an island. That expression, acted hypocritically, means that they acted one way with the Gentiles and another when the Jews showed up. Their actions were inconsistent with their faith. So which was it? Do Jews have to keep the laws or are they free in Christ? Barnabas had seen the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the Gentiles and heard Peter proclaim the gospel of grace through faith 
But even he followed Peter's lead in eating with the Jews that came from Jerusalem. Are we one or is there a Jewish church and a Gentile church? How did the Gentiles feel when the Jews started to act like they were special? Paul was abandoned by his Jewish brothers. We can't imagine the damage which would have been done to the gospel message had, Peter, had Paul caved in and gone with them. It would not be the gospel we know today, or God would have raised someone else up to proclaim it. How important it was for Paul to stand against them. Truth prevails even when a majority oppose it because it will eventually be found out. Verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? The truth of the gospel is that Christ fulfilled the law for us. So we are no longer under the law, but under grace. If they had to circumcise the Gentiles and have them eat kosher, then what other laws needed to be, to be obeyed? Sacrifice in the temple? What difference would Christ have made for them then? Peter knew what the Spirit had taught him in Joppa when, he, when those sheets came down. And that what God calls clean, we are not to call unclean. He witnessed the outpouring of the Spirit on those Gentiles who didn't observe the law. And he was taught the gospel of grace from God, and yet he was fearful of the opinion of the self-righteous Judaizers. Paul's confrontation was based on Peter's actions not being in step with the truth of the gospel of grace. It sent the wrong message, one that was contradictory to the true gospel, and it led others astray. And because it was public, Paul addressed it publicly. Paul went right to the point and exposed the hypocrisy. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? Are we free in Christ or aren't we? And if we are, why change your behavior when certain people come around confusing the Gentile believers as to what's necessary for salvation? Instead, why not demonstrate the freedom that Christ gives us by being united with the believers in grace. Messianic congregations today still struggle with this issue. If individually they want to eat kosher or even in a group that's all Jewish, that's not a problem. But when Gentiles are present at a potluck and those who eat non-kosher food have to eat at a separate table, or if they refuse to attend a non-kosher gathering, is that not saying there are two kinds of Christ followers? In the, in the temple where the Jews worshipped, the temple that Jesus taught in, around the temple structure itself, there's the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, huge, nine football fields in size. But then you have the temple within that compound. And around that temple was a little wall about three feet high. And periodically on that wall is posted... The words, Gentiles enter here upon threat of death. In other words, no Gentile is allowed in the temple. 
And what Paul is saying is that wall was destroyed by Christ. There's no, we have access to God through Jesus. Not only can we go into the temple, we can go right into the Holy of Holies. Praise God. And he said that before it was physically destroyed. He said the spiritual truth and then the physical reality happened in AD 70. All those who are in Christ can come right into the holy place because of the Lord is our righteousness. The Jews no longer need an earthly priest to go in once a year. That was all the law too. All believers have access through the Spirit and he made us one. And acting otherwise distorts the message of the gospel. This dispute between the two apostles demonstrates the veracity of the Bible. None of the characters in scripture other than Jesus are presented as perfect. Jesus selected Peter to feed the sheep and yet here he is rebuked for compromising out of fear. You know, if we were writing a book that we wanted everybody to, uh, to believe in and follow, we would certainly not put this in it. <laughs> this guy's the leader and we got Jesus appointed him and then he messed up. We wouldn't do that. But the Bible is honest. 40 different authors from all walks of life, written over 1,500 years, and it has the same message throughout, the same beautiful story. Man is fallen, and even God's chosen leaders make mistake. The Bible not only reveals to us the nature of God, but it reveals the nature of man. It all points to Jesus as the solution to our sin debt. No work can add to what he accomplished for us on the cross. I want to add to this passage the response of Peter. We aren't really told in this text, but I think we can assume from uh, the personality of Peter and what we've seen of him before and what he wrote later. When he was confronted it, in the palace of Caiaphas, remember, you're one of them, aren't you? And when that rooster finally crowed, he didn't say, I didn't do it. He didn't say, I justified it. He went out and wept bitterly. And I imagine there was a similar response here, that he realized what he was doing and it broke his heart. Later on in one of Peter's letters, he says that the letters of Paul are hard to understand, but they're scripture. We should take rebukes addressed to us before the Lord to see if we're indeed guilty and be willing to gratefully receive correction. Sometimes people accuse us of motivations or acts of which we're not guilty. We should receive them with grace and leave our defense to the Lord. Whatever a person thinks of our fallen nature, they can never be critical enough. But praise be to God. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? That's the wonder of grace. How can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? That expression to live like Jews is actually one word in Greek. It was a word used for um, Jewish people who turned Gentiles to Judaism. In other words, uh, uh, a converter a Jew converter. 
So we could translate the phrase, how can you force Gentile Christians to become Jews? The next verse refers to, that we'll see next week, to Gentile sinners. It's how Jews thought of the rest of the world. But Peter knew they were partakers of the same Holy Spirit, sanctified by the blood of Jesus, full partners in the family of God, heirs of the promise and members of the kingdom of God. And to separate himself at another table denied all of that. Racism of any brand in any culture is incompatible with the truth of the gospel. Sometimes we want to imply that everyone must have the same disciplines or the same behavior. We add to the gospel of grace by insisting on things like Bible reading, prayer, witnessing, fellowship, which are all needed. But when we say you're not a Christian unless you, we subvert the gospel. The Holy Spirit is the one who needs to convict and draw people to follow along in those disciplines instead of doing something out of duty. It's the Spirit's work. We can encourage, but take care that our encouragement doesn't become discouragement. We're not cattle to be driven, but sheep that are led. The Lord is our shepherd. He leads us to green pastures. He's not a cattle rancher that drives us to market. Hallelujah. <laughs> this encounter was a major turning point for the church. Thank God the Spirit moved Paul to stand up for the truth. Thank God Peter received it and that the church of Jerusalem endorsed the gospel of grace. Otherwise, we'd still needlessly be under the heavy yoke of the law. But Christ has set us free to walk in the spirit of the law, not the letter. The laws of Moses were guidelines for a world that did not have the spirit indwelling them. And now that Jesus opened the way to sanctify us through his blood, the spirit of God is living within us and guides us to all truth. The message to the Galatians was that life in the spirit was so much better than the cold law. Peter's error was sending the signal that that was not necessarily true. Paul, of, of all people, knew where the law led him and how the Spirit released him and set him free. My prayer is that we all, myself included, learn to live in the Spirit rather than the, the rules. How we need to appreciate the wonder of grace that Christ has done all for us. For Paul describes in the next paragraph, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I want to close with this illustration I, I just read this morning, actually, that I thought so beautifully conveys what Paul's saying here. In a sermon preached at York Minster shortly after the death of the late dean, who was Augustus uh, Duncombe, Canon Body says, a few days before his departure, I was at his bedside and in the course of the conversation alluded to his work for the church and the brave way he contended for the faith. And he stopped me saying, say nothing of that. When you are where I am now, you will see nothing will bear looking at one's own. There's only one trust then the infinite mercies of the Savior. I said, true, it is peace, is it not, with you now 
He replied, perfect peace. Thank God, perfect peace. Amen.